Coming up on Studios America, I will speak with author James Lindsay about his new platform that's looking to educate the public on the sinister truth behind critical race theory. I'll tell you about the world's most premature baby and how he's doing today. Spoiler alert, he's alive. And now that the Black Lives Movement has burned down, you know, half the country, we have to ask the question, what did it accomplish? I look at the consequences of all of that wonderful, mostly peaceful violence as we do the BLM effect. Stu does America. On June 9th, a father in Illinois went to a school board meeting and ranted about the potential use of critical race theory in schools. This is notable for a couple of reasons. One, if he's opposing critical race theory being taught to children, he must hate black people. And two, it's difficult for him to be accused of hating black people because mm, he's black. What I wanna do is I wanna talk about when we think about critical race theory, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? When you say the word critical, what comes to your mind when you think about the word critical? I have two degrees in medicine. You know what critical means to us? Critical means that the person is almost getting ready to die or they most surely will die. So when you say critical race theory, you might think of it in the sense of, oh, this information is critical that they know as of the up and important. But when I think about critical race theory, I think about critical as in this is getting ready to kill something or kill somebody. He went on to talk about how critical race theory was BS. He had two medical degrees. If the white man's keeping me down, how on earth can uh, I have two medical degrees and be successful in this society? Of course, that clip has gone viral and those on the left are trying to now discredit him, trying to pick apart his educational history, which is interesting and predictable. Because to say that this guy has been kept down by the white man, you have to show he hasn't accomplished anything. And this puts the left in an awkward position of attempting to destroy the reputation of a black man in order to keep the narrative. It's awkward, but awkward is what they're good at. What they are absolutely not good at is protecting black lives. They don't care about black lives. Black lives are like 973rd on their priority list, well behind money, power, and extra vacation homes. Now, that's just me, some evil right-wing conservative talking about this BLM movement. But what does the data actually show? Some indication can be found in a little-noticed preprint on the Social Science Research Network, authored by a PhD student in economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst by the name of Travis Campbell. He decided to look back at Black Lives Matter as a movement and try to quantify how much good it actually did. He studied BLM from its birth in 2013 to 2019, a period that quite notably did not include last year's destructive and violent rioting in cities all over America. Basically, it looked at the situation this way. We know some areas had lots of BLM protests against police violence, and we know many did not. If BLM was a positive force in stopping police violence, you'd expect areas with protests to see that type of violence go down. Did that happen? Before we answer, you should know that the author of this paper does not appear to be conservative in any way. I mean, it's the University of Massachusetts Amherst. They might not be burning witches anymore, but Salem is just a couple of hours away, and I'm told conservatives are far more flammable. So did the study find that BLM protests led to a decrease in officers committing homicides against civilians? Yes. Yes, it did. But stay with me, quote, 
Estimates suggest that census places with BLM protests experienced a 15 to 20 percent decrease in police homicides from 2014 to 2019, approximately 300 fewer police homicides. This fall in lethal use of force fell over time and became more prominent when protests were large or frequent. Okay, so that sounds good, right? More BLM protests lead to less police homicide. Case closed, right? Well, first of all, I have to take issue with the term police homicides. A homicide is not a murder. But that word gives the impression to the average person that it was an unjust killing. The legal definition of homicide is the killing of a human being due to the act or omission of another. Included among homicides are murder and manslaughter. But not all homicides are crime, are crimes, particularly when there is a lack of criminal intent. And so this study doesn't measure unjust uses of force by police. It just measures uses of force generally some of which, most of which, are entirely justified. For example, one of the sources they use for the study is a database of police shootings by the Washington Post, which indicates 999 people were shot and killed by police in 2019. Of course, of those 999 people, only 251 were black, about 25%. In that group were David Anderson and Francine Graham, both black and both needlessly gunned down by police immediately following their visit to a kosher store in Jersey City, where they killed three people, which followed their murder of a police officer who was questioning them about another murder from a week earlier. Yes, it's true. The police did kill two black people that day as they were in the middle of an active shooter spree where they were targeting Jews in support of their black Israelite ideology, completely justified in every way. But anyway, Yes, the study found that BLM protests were associated with about 300 less deaths by police over six years. Why did that happen? There were several possibilities, as outlined by Vox, who, to their credit, were one of the few outlets that actually covered this. First, he observed an increase in the use of body cameras and different types of community policing. It's possible that in response to BLM protests, police departments implemented reforms that reduced lethal use of force. Look, there's no one who benefits more from body cameras than the police themselves. But as Vox notes, there is not really convincing data that would account for these differences. The second mechanism is that civilians are becoming more wary of the police in the aftermath of these protests and publicizing of instances of police homicides. That could mean that people called 911 less often or engage with police officers of their own volition less often which has the effect of reducing civilian police interactions and thereby fatal interactions as well. Okay, so maybe our people are more scared of the police, so they call less often. That leads to less intense interactions in highly emotional times, leading to less uses of force by police. Eh, maybe plausible. Okay, and finally, the third mechanism is something called the Ferguson effect. The supposition that protests against police brutality reduce officer morale and effort due to the intensified scrutiny from the community and the media. In other words, officers just stop doing their jobs as aggressively. This can lead to reduced arrests, especially for less serious crimes like disorderly conduct or marijuana possession. Okay, so police are tired of being called genocidal maniacs all the time and therefore are involved uh, in those intense situations less often because, you know, they just avoid them. So let's take all of this at face value for a second. 300 less, 300 fewer police homicides. But remember, 
the overwhelming majority of those quote unquote homicides are justified. So when police aren't around to take those people out and they don't want to get involved in those sticky situations, how do those situations play out? Well, guess what? The study looked into that, too. And what it found would shock, I think, most people, quote, the results indicate that civilian homicides increased by 10 percent following protests, exceeding the fall in lethal force due to the relative frequency. So you got that? The study says that while 300 less people, fewer people, whichever one I can never forget, remember which one I'm supposed to use, while 300 fewer people were killed by police, far more were killed by civilians. Police shootings went down, sure, but murders by civilians went up, way, way up. How far up? From 2014 to 2019, there were somewhere between 1,000 and 6,000 more homicides than would have been expected if places with protests were on the same trend as places that did not have protests. So they traded 300 overwhelmingly justified shootings by police for between 1 and 6,000 murders of civilians. We know that because of the racial makeup of these areas, these 1 to 6,000 people were disproportionately black. Black Lives Matter, do they? Do they BLM? I'm sorry, but trading every police shooting saved for somewhere between three and 20 murders of civilians is not exactly what I would call black lives mattering. It sounds like something the KKK would design in a lab. Now remember, the author is not conservative, so he wants to warn people away from doing what I just did. Quote, this estimate may tempt one to into using a measure of lives saved versus lost following protests to determine the social welfare implications of BLM. Such an analysis would not be convincing. The welfare implications for civilian and police homicides are distinct. The emerging literature on the spillover effects of police homicides makes this point clear. Police homicides do not diminish the tragedy of rising civilian homicides, but they do have a demonstrable effect on black mental health and future crime, including murders. They also profoundly threaten community trust and cooperation. No, not community trust and cooperation. Future research is needed. So you can't look at the fact that as many as 20 times the amount of people are dead because police shootings are worse. You see, they might hurt black mental health or threaten community trust and cooperation, even though the overwhelming majority of them are completely justified. I OK, sure. I, I gotcha. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and disagree on this one. Some civilian being murdered by another civilian is also going to hurt the mental health of the community and hurt trust. Vox summed up the study and to their credit, they did cover the results showing BLM actually wound up causing black lives to, you know, end more frequently. But they included this bit, which probably sounds a bit controversial. Protests can do a lot. They can raise awareness, create solidarity, or undermine existing relationships, change public opinion, strengthen or weaken institutions, and affect the outcome of elections. But according to this study, BLM protests also produce their intended effect. That might sound insane. What do you mean they, pro they produce their intended effect? Three to 20 times as many people were murdered than saved. And you say they produce their intended effect? 
But I think this analysis is right. The BLM protests did produce their intended result. It's just that their intended result had nothing to do with protecting black lives. It had to do with power, money, and buying new vacation houses. And as we know, all of this has come to the BLM founders and allies in record numbers. Trading one criminal for 20 innocent people wasn't exactly the plan. It was just the cost of doing business. Sure, people died, but also elections were won, donations poured in, and real estate transactions were completed. So I fully agree, BLM protests do produce their intended effect. Maybe it's about time though, that we question their intentions. If you were one of the lucky people who didn't have their entire neighborhood burned to the ground over the past year, you're excited about the housing market because the housing market is really going nuts right now. I mean, this is a great time to sell a home if you have one to sell. However, it's also a dangerous time because if you don't fully take advantage of this time, you could be in serious financial uh, straits uh, going forward. And if you commit to too much right now or look for the wrong things in a home, you could be in trouble as well. Realestateagentsitrust.com was a company that was created by our own Glenn Beck, who said, you know what? Like, I keep having problems with real estate agents. They're not doing the job that they need to be doing. What am I supposed to do in this situation? I, how am I supposed to screen real estate agents? What if there was a service that actually did it for me? Someone who understood all the ins and outs and all the best practices and made sure that the people with the best results are getting business from realestateagentsitrust.com. He created the, the, the company, the site, and now it's there for you, free to you, by the way. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go to find the best real estate agent in your area. Realestateagentsitrust.com. We have James Lindsay in just a second. And remember to subscribe to this little podcast we have here, Stu Does America. If you haven't already, just head to your favorite provider, subscribe, and be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a nice review. Remember, five stars is the appropriate number of stars. You can find links to the podcast and all of our content at stewdoesamerica.com. Okay, I'm happy to welcome uh, to the program James Lindsay, author of Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why That Harms Everyone everybody, and the founder of the New Discourses platform, James. Thanks so much for coming on, man. I pre appreciate it. Hey, Stu. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, it's been an interesting ride here. For people who don't know your history and how you kind of came uh, to, you know, a very prominent speaker on these, on these topics, how did that happen? Where did you come from and how did you get here? I mean, there's a lot of stories that could be told to, to, to how I got here. The very first thing that made me realize that was going on with what we would now identify as woke ideology was the conversation that I was having with a group of people, one of whom included a white working class man and a white uh, professional class woman. And the white working class man was talking about an affirmative action hire, his suspicion anyway, of an affirmative action hire at his factory job that was endangering people uh, on the factory floor because she wasn't particularly competent in his assessment. And the the white uh, professional class woman spoke over him and said, that's not appropriate. And I said, hey, look, we should listen to his story. We should listen to everybody's story. And her response was, white people's stories have been told. And I thought this is an emergency. You know, this is the kind of logic that's extraordinarily dangerous if it's taken to its logical conclusion. And so 
you know, this led me to understanding that there's this idea of systemic racism that people were dabbling in and what I thought was a sociological literature. Next thing you know, I'm writing a series of academic hoaxes to expose that academic literature. Very successful in the Grievance Studies Affair in late 2018, showing that this scholarship is based on towers of, of sophistry and lies and, and just kind of made up and to purpose. And then the next thing you know, it's like, well, I have to tell the world about what we found because it's very alarming. You know, there's abusive ideas, these same thoughts that I was seeing, you know, your story has been told. You don't get to tell your story anymore is baked throughout the literature. The idea that we're going to learn through causing discomfort, which we heard all through the riots last summer, was something I encountered years ago and was very alarmed about. So I have a kind of a long history leading up to this, uh, but it was all this sort of same track of very concerning thought emerging in, you know, everyday circumstances, seeing it in the scholarly literature, seeing it on the media, et cetera, and seeing it put in, into action all summer last year, of course. And, and you've done a lot to expose this over time. And it, with that process comes a lot of uh, new attacks. I want to highlight one, though. Uh, a couple of months ago, a bunch of publications seemed to come after you uh, over one of the studies, the hoaxes that you uh, that you talked about, where you uh, put part of Mein Kampf basically into a paper and submitted it to academic journals. And the accusation was that you were misleading people and saying that you did this, that you put Mein Kampf in. And in reality, it wasn't exactly Mein Kampf. I wanted to highlight this clip. This is from when you came on the radio show in 2018, because when this accusation against you came out, I remember you specifically telling us it was not uh, exactly Mein Kampf. And you warned us against thinking that way. Listen to this clip. James, a <clears throat> couple of quick questions. Um, a. This had to be one of those things that you uh, entered into and hoped that you were wrong. And when they were accepted, you had to celebrate and then short time later going, good God, this is bad. Am I right? That's that is exactly right. So especially with the Mein Kampf paper, I think the one that got accepted. Um, the idea there was that we were trying to. It's very different from Mein Kampf, of course. Don't let me mislead yeah, yeah, yeah. you that it's a one to one thing. Right. Uh, but the, the the politics of grievance come through. And I really am glad I get to talk to you about this if I can, because politics of grievance is everywhere. And it's certainly being used in the academic left as we were trying to demonstrate. We call this stuff grievance studies. But we see it everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is why we're so divided uh, politically right now. I mean... James, uh, you know, you went out of your way in a moment where we would have probably just accepted that you wrote it for one for one. We were just learning about this story. You went out of your way to be clear here. And it, what, what made me think about that clip was that you're a guy that you didn't come from this background where you were constantly being attacked. You put yourself out there and now you're dealing with this sort of fraudulent crap all the time. What's what's that like? That's exhausting. I mean, you know, it's funny because you see these woke people all the time. I'm tired. I'm tired. Yeah, I'm tired. Let me tell you about being tired. Um, you get tired of the distortions. You get tired of the manipulations. You get tired of the lies. You get tired. Like for right now, everybody's, you know, nobody who criticizes critical race theory knows what it is. Uh, yeah, we do. And it's exhausting to have to get gaslighted about, the, gaslighted about this again and again and again. So that kind of thing is really exhausting. And you are right. You know, I got attacked about this again just a few months ago. Somebody tried to say that I wrote about the, you know, we, we just rewrote the best part of Mein Kampf as, as those is a good part. Took totally out of context <laughs> that it's actually not the best part of Mein Kampf. It's not the nastiest chapter in and of itself but in context you know he spends a few chapters hitler does 
complaining about his life and all of his political enemies and he builds up and then in the 11th chapter he rails on the Jews and then in chapter 12 which is the one we rewrote he's like we need a movement to fix this problem it's not in context a very good chapter um, so you know it's it's ridiculous to have to just endure these kind of attacks again and again to tell you that you didn't say what you said to, to portray you as something that you're not so how does it feel is exhausting and you know I'm several years into this process at this point and I'm tired. <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate you pushing through it as you have. Uh, it's really important work. And then the most recent attack you kind of alluded to there on this idea is that critical race theory has gone from a word that was, you know, mainly in academic circles before you and some others have, have kind of uh, changed people's, uh, drawn people's attention to it, I guess. And the new attack from the left and the media is that critical race theory people don't understand it. They're just saying it because they don't want to have uncomfortable conversations about race. Uh, they don't want anyone to be taught that, that slavery was bad. All these ridiculous accusations. What is critical race theory and are, is the right, uh, is the conservative media misusing it? Um, I mean, obviously not everybody's perfect, but for the most part, no, the conservative media is accurate. It is not the attempt to not teach about slavery. Critical race theorists have this very arrogant and uh, manipulative belief that they're the only people teaching about anything to do with race correctly and everybody else is somehow upholding the status quo in one way or another and therefore a fascist or a racist or something. So the conservative media is mostly accurate. In fact, when I got invited on the show, I went back to find out what is my oldest tweet. It took some time. I've apparently tweeted about critical race theory a lot of times to dig all the way down to the bottom. What is my oldest tweet about critical race theory? And there's a thread that I did in late 2018. Of course, I deleted my entire Twitter right before those grievance studies papers came out. So I may have talked about it before that and don't remember. But in late 2018, I did a thread on what critical race theory is. And I was accurate by my own standards that I, I now understand the ideology well. I was pretty accurate then. And the conservative media has certainly caught up by following voices, thankfully, like my own and several other people who have spoken up about it. Um, so I think that it, it's inaccurate to say we don't know what it is. It's inaccurate to say we don't understand it when we see it. Uh, you know, it's the Marxian frame, if you will, the neo-Marxian frame of conflict across a power dynamic uh, drawn by race to now you have oppressors versus oppressed. It's a very simple understanding that people have. I would say that the definition of critical race theory that cuts through all the BS, though, is that it is the belief that the organizing principle of society is racism, which was constructed to benefit whites at the expense of everybody else, and that this needs to be analyzed in the same way that Marx analyzed class. And the right is basically nailing that exactly right. They're not getting it wrong. Conservative media is talking about it correctly and accurately. And the people who are obfuscating on this are frankly lying. They're just saying that people don't understand it or they're nitpicking. A big nitpick that they use is, oh, we're not teaching critical race theory as in like the actual academic legal theory from the 70s and 80s in, in elementary schools. So obviously we're not teaching critical race theory, but that's a lie. They're doing critical race theory. They're framing out every other lesson, whether it's English, whether it's math, whether it's social studies, in terms of critical race theories, ideology, this is called critical race praxis. And to use the Marxian word, they're doing this on purpose. They know it's slightly different in a technicality from the theory. It's the application of the theory to education. They know what they're doing. They're very manipulative and they're lying. And it's very aggravating to watch this keep happening. Yeah, that is. It does seem like that's the road they're going down, and this seems like the way that that conservatives generally ever win any of these battles. Which is, it takes time for conservatives or anyone to be to to understand a new issue. 
And once once they understand this issue and the, the average person on the left or the right or the middle understands it, they're so con- offended by it. The only thing to fall back on is to say that, well, you don't understand. I mean, this is above your head. It's over your head. You don't understand. This is not that serious an issue. It seems like an intentional thing they're doing to try to demean those who uh, don't think critical race theory is the way to go. I mean, that's exactly right. The critical theories in general only have a handful of tricks. I mean, there's maybe just a handful, two or three main tools that they use. One of those is to make people believe that they're bad people for thinking that they, for disagreeing with it, with their critical theory, whether they say that, you know, we're the true anti-fascist, so if you disagree with us, you're fascist, or we're the true anti-racist, so if you disagree with us, you're racist. They try to tie you to systems and complicity in these horrible systems of oppression and all the harm that they cause. This is one of their tricks. Another is to trick people into believing they don't know what they're talking about, uh, to drain them of their epistemic authority, to say things like, you know, when I was recently appeared on Mark Lamont Hill's show, he said, you know, oh, we, and the we, let's highlight the we, we don't call, we're not, we aren't Marxists, you know, we're, that we call that vulgar Marxism, you know, that we have a more sophisticated Marxism, which just led me to tweet as I think is appropriate that critical race theory you know, it's not technically Marxist. It is just the good parts of Marxism and the good parts of racism repackaged into a new thing. <laughs> It'll work this time, you know, surely. Yeah. And you don't understand all the sophisticated nuance and all the sophisticated detail because you're just a stupid pleb who doesn't have critical consciousness. In other words, you don't already believe way, the way we believe as critical theorists. So, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Look how much more sophisticated we are and how vulgar you are. It's a constant effort to discredit people illegitimately by using a lot of big words, by changing the terminology. It's not critical race theory anymore. It's now culturally responsive teaching, CRT, CRT, who could possibly be bamboozled by this, but they think that they can trick everybody with their fancy big words and their hyphens and all of that. And it is deliberate. Mm. Uh, Another strategy that they seem to look at is just to downplay it. Like I hear this a lot from people. Look, this is a workplace seminar. People aren't even paying attention to it. It's a bunch of bullet points in a PowerPoint that they're not even going to be paying attention to. And yes, some of it's offensive and, and some of it's, you know, silly, but it's not a real it's not a, something we should really be all this excited about. What do you say to that criticism? I mean, you know, I could go biblical and just say, judge the tree by its fruit. I mean, look what's actually happening. I think I heard recently, I need to check on this and follow up, but I saw a statistic that said something like 95% of the companies that are taking up these critical race theory based diversity trainings are actually having problems. Like it's not moving them forward. It's causing problems in their companies. So the fruits are bad. Um, You're seeing kids coming home depressed. You're not seeing education being improved. I think our national scorecard just came out and showed that education is basically in a dumpster. You got like 20 to 30% proficiency in virtually every subject. It's not working. And it's causing a ton of racial division. It's tons of of people. I get emails almost every day saying that I've been forced to think about race and it's not working out, you know, in a way that I've never had to. This is not making me less racist. It's making me more racist. What do I do? I get kind of desperate, please. The whole thing is a pot of poison. And to say that, oh, it's not really that important because people don't pay attention. Well, some people pay attention. And if you understood the point of a diversity training at work, which is to install a few apparatchiks into identify the people who are going to be dissenters so that you can use justifications like inclusion to purge them or to censor them or censure them, then you understand that this is not benign. And if it was such a small deal, why are these companies dumping so much money? These trainings are not cheap. They're hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if it wasn't meant to accomplish something, why on earth is this actually happening? It makes absolutely no sense. It's just another deflection technique to get people away from the fact that this stuff is a disaster. 
Is part of it to just a get out of jail free card for these companies? They think if they have Robin D'Angelo or Ibram Kendi in to speak, that they can claim they're they're woke and they don't have to deal with these criticisms. I'm not saying that's going to work, but are are there companies that are actually trying to do it that way? Oh, yeah, sure. Of course, there are going to be a lot of companies that are going to be trying to deflect from some horrible thing that they're doing, like, you know, Disney and its blind eye toward the Chinese or whatever else. There's going to be a lot of kind of deflection stuff. And it's all baked in at a deeper level, however, to these so-called ESG, environmental social governance metrics that are getting put into like their stock valuation and, and participation in various stock portfolios and so on. So there's a lot of crooked stuff going on behind the scenes with these with these companies that are bringing it in. But the if this was absolutely back to the original point, if this were absolutely pointless and nobody's paying attention, nobody would be investing this much time and energy and effort into doing it. And it wouldn't be having the results that it's having, which is, you know, companies and meltdown, people crying on TV and, you know, people, people basically at each other's throats over, over racial issues that didn't even come up to the to the surface to the level that they are now. I mean, they've been generated up to the surface. They haven't been unearthed uh, in the past few years. It, it, it's just absolutely an upside down argument. And speaking of upside down, if the, if the world has seemed upside down to you uh, lately, uh, James Lindsay has written about this. He's been talking about it for years. His book is Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. Uh, James, thanks so much for doing this and the work that you're doing and continuing to expose this. It's really important, and I appreciate you coming on today. Thanks, Stu. That's great. All right, it makes sense people uh, get life insurance. Of course, they have to. You have to do that, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. You can, bit, you can pay a little bit each month, protect the ones you love. You know, I mean, it makes sense, right? But where do you get it from? Let me tell you about Ladder. Ladder makes it impressively fast and easy to get covered. You just need a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. I mean, we, we, we do this with so many different things in our lives. Where we go on a site, we're comparing the prices, we're comparing the coverage, we're comparing everything that we're getting. Ladder can do this for you. No hidden fees, you can cancel at any time. And since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved Go to ladderlife.com, L-A-D-D-E-R, life.com slash stew. The slash stew part of the address is important because that's how they know you like this stupid show. But go to Ladder Life, check it out, ladderlife.com slash stew, ladderlife.com slash stew. Thank you so much for joining me in Doing America Tonight. I know you missed me last week, of course, so tonight we'll do it extra hard, I promise. If you haven't had a chance, head over to my Instagram page at Stu Does America and give me a follow. Uh, exclusive picks, content, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, also, link in the bio will take you to the platforms where you can watch this stupid little show completely free. I don't know if I can call the show stupid, right? At least for this segment, because this is amazing. It's 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 inspiring, and it is fantastic. Fantastic news. Um, uh, Richard Scott William Hutchinson. Mm. He was born five months premature, five months. Recognized by the Guinness World, uh, World Records uh, as the most premature baby, 131 days prior to the expected due date and weighing, uh, weighing just 11.9 ounces. I think I've got a picture of, uh, of the little guy. 
uh, at 11.9 ounces. So small. I mean, if, if for those on podcast, we're talking about fitting in the palm of your hand. I mean, that's how small this little baby is. And the type of baby that absolutely can be aborted uh, if, you, uh, if you want to in this country, really anywhere. And something that you'd say most people on the left would just be like, I mean, that's not even, what is that thing? I don't even know. What is that thing? Well, it's a baby. And we can tell you it's a baby because they decided not to kill it. They decided to try to make it live. Maybe everything they could to try to get this little guy to make it through. And so far, it has happened. We now have a picture of what he's like today. He's getting through uh, everything pretty, pretty darn well. Uh, pretty incredible that this has happened. And a miracle, an absolute miracle. You know, my, my wife uh, volunteered at a, a NICU uh, for a while. And uh, she said, she came back. I remember her coming back and saying, like, I just, coming out of there, she was pro-life before. I don't see how you can be pro, anything but pro-life after going through an experience like that. A friend of mine had a premature baby uh, recently. The, the amount of, of surgeries and all of the things they've done to keep this little guy alive is, you know, it's incredible. And most societies in the history of the planet would just give up and say, screw it. What are you going to do? Bring on another baby. Let's see what happens. Instead, we're now doing things to save babies at 20 and 21 weeks. Uh, it's incredible, and I'm thrilled to bring in that news because the longer, the, the more science advances here, the harder it's going to be to justify just eliminating these forms of life, these living beings. Uh, you can't just throw them out. Uh, we're getting down, you know, when Roe versus Wade came through, obviously we know it's terrible law if you, if you care about that sort of thing. But it did talk about how viability is an important part here. And uh, if, if the baby can survive on its own, well, of course, obviously it should be allowed to live. That was really what Roe versus Wade even said. I mean, that's not a conservative piece, uh, you know, of Supreme Court law. This is, uh, you know, this is a ruling that was obviously something that most conservatives hate. But it made that point pretty clearly. You know, yeah, I mean, earlier on, maybe when it needs the mom, there's an argument to be made. But obviously, after viability, uh, of course, you shouldn't be aborting babies. Well, now one of the two major parties thinks you can go to like the last minute. So that's horrible. And I'm glad uh, these little points uh, can be brought up to save hundreds of thousands, millions of future lives. Uh, it's really important. Um, by the way, the presidential race in 2024 is already heating up. Thank I can't you. I just can't wait for multiple years of this. It's going to be lots of fun. Uh, they did a Western conservative summit poll uh, of the people going to this um, uh, this conference. And basically, you'd say, would you would you want this person to be president? Ron DeSantis won. And that's getting a lot of the press here. I think it's a little misleading, even though I like Ron DeSantis. He got 74 percent of the vote. Ron, Donald Trump at 71. Ted Cruz, 43. Mike Pompeo, 39. And Tim Scott, 36. Basically, if you look at these results, because you could vote for multiple people. Uh, and basically, if you say, oh, look, would you be excited about this being the nominee? Um, and DeSantis winning just tells you there's more people who would be happy, but not necessarily that there's the passion behind him um, as, as there might be uh, behind Trump. I mean, here's the, here's the here's a little secret. This is a little secret for you. Donald Trump wins. He's going to be the nominee. He decides to run. He's he's going to be the nominee. That's it. He, his race is getting in or not. That's the only decision to be made. He's overwhelmingly popular. There's no one who's going to even want to stand. Honestly, he's going to, if he runs, it's going to be a vice presidential um, battle to see who can, who can coddle his favor most uh, to be named vice president. I, with the exception of the, you know, whatever version of John Kasich we have this year, 
Uh, no one's going to run against the guy. I mean, I don't think. I could be wrong on that. We'll see. Um, DeSantis, though, uh, is, the, is the guy. I wonder, we, we should talk about this. We've touched on it briefly. I touched, talked about it a little bit on radio today. I hosted the show with Pat Gray today. If you want to go back and listen, uh, Glenn will be back tomorrow on radio. But if I'm just purely a strategist for Ron DeSantis, I'm wondering if he's peaking too early. Yeah, we still have multiple years here before really this thing gets heated up into an actual race. Certainly another... Uh, you know, year and a half before even we get to the midterms. So you get a, this is a tough pace. He is ahead of the field now, but we've seen a lot of people rise to the top and then go away. I'd wonder if he's peaking too early. I'd be a little worried about that if I was a DeSantis advisor. However, I am not. Greg Abbott is also doing a kind of a lot of splashy things right now. Uh, if you remember in Texas, yeah, people decided to just walk out so that they couldn't get a bill they didn't like passed. That was praised, of course, by the media because the bill was a conservative-leaning bill. So then it's okay to walk out, and who cares about democracy? Who cares if the people voted a Republican um, a group of representatives in? If they want to do Republican-type things, well, then they have to be overruled. Democracy can't stand in that case, obviously. We care about democracy when it benefits the left. Not when it benefits the right. Uh, so he is now uh, going through with a, um, a uh, threat uh, to veto a section of the state budget that funds the Texas legislature. Uh, so he is, he, he, there's a lot of people vying for this job. I think Abbott's one of them. He wants to get the potential, be a, a potential candidate for president in 2024 as well. We'll keep watching that. Another bizarre thing going on here in Texas, we had this sort of Texas freeze. Uh, where, you know, my house is basically destroyed. Then we had the, uh, kind of a heat wave here recently. Um, and these power companies are freaking out. We're getting all these messages in Texas. Hey, don't turn your, you know, your air conditioning down below 80. What's the point of even having air conditioning if you're not going to turn it below 80? Anyway, there is a clause in some of these power contracts where they can adjust your temperature in the middle of the night. You're asleep. You go to bed, uh, sleep at, you know, 70 degrees. And they've adjusted it up to 75 or 78 so you wake up sweating. People do not like that. No, do not touch my temperature. This is why people warn against the smart thermometer thing. They start doing that in my house, I'm out. I'm going back to the old school rotary one. I'm gonna get rotary phones in my house and a rotary, I'm gonna dial it in every time I want my temperature. Don't touch the temperature of my house. It needs to be freezing cold. I don't care what it does to the environment. I'm very selfish, obviously. Back in a second. We all know protein bars uh, and how terrible they are. I mean, basically you take the chemical taste, you can smell it when you open up the wrapper and then it does not taste good at all. If you would select one of these over a candy bar, you have dropped too many barbells on your head. But Bilt Bars have changed that whole calculus. Did you know that Bilt Bar has nine delicious flavors uh, nine delicious flavors, but they also mix in all sorts of uh, different limited time flavors as well. Got to check their site often. But anyway, they've got coconut, coconut almond, cherry, raspberry, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, double chocolate, salted caramel. I mean, these are delicious flavors. You know that. But they're actually good, too. And you can get a mixed box of them uh, where they give you two of each of the flavors. So you can try it out and see what you like. Built Bars aren't just the best uh, tasting protein bar out there. They're healthy, too. Uh, 17 grams of protein, 130 calories, only four grams of sugar, only four grams of net carbs. You can't beat that. My wife, who's actually in shape, she, drinks, she eats these things all the time. She eats them for dessert because they're delicious. Uh, Built Bars have a new fancy 
URL, the new website. They're like share now, okay? It's just built.com. Built.com. Use the promo code STU15, and for some reason, you'll save 10% off your first order. STU15, 10% off. It just rolls off the tongue at Built.com. Go there now. Built.com. Promo code is STU15. We talked to James Lindsay about wokeness earlier on the program, and I've said this several times, and people keep parroting it back to me. Wokeness is weakness. It's not just some crazy thing. It's, a, it's, it's us giving up. It's giving up. Wokeness is weakness. And so we decided to take your advice and put it on a t-shirt mug for you. Wokeness is weakness. It's available now at stewdoesmerch.com. Stewdoesmerch.com. Get it. Wokeness is weakness. Available now. By the way, Don Lemon, very woke. He's very, very woke. Wants you to know you live in a racist country. You're a racist. You live here. Are you white? You're racist. Here's what he said. He said, uh, there's also a false reality that we're living in a post-racial world after the election of Barack Obama. That, that was all BS. It was a wake-up call to white people who thought we were living in a non-racist world. We're living in two different realities as black and white people. We knew as black people what was lurking beneath the surface. I still believe that Trump was the necessary wake-up for America just to realize how racist it is. Ah, I love being told. This is why we also have this at studiosmerch.com. It says Don Lemon is worse or as a Glenn suggestion, I don't know. <laughs> He's like, ah, you have, uh, Andrew Cuomo is awful and Chris Cuomo is worse. How about Don Lemon is worse? Or, well, you can get that now as well at studiosmerch.com. But more impor importantly, this idea that America is a racist country is so incredibly frustrating. But let me just boil it down to one little part of the argument. As opposed to what? It's racist as opposed to what? Your weird utopia that you imagine exists among human beings? Of course there are racists here. There are racists everywhere. This is one of the most impressive countries that has ever existed. I think the most impressive. We have all sorts of diverse populace, populations. And while we have our scuffles, generally speaking, I don't know, life is pretty sweet here. I like America. I'm going to stay. I hope you do do as well, because, you know, it's OK to have different people with different views. But stop being psychotic about it. Stop acting like you know better than everyone else. America is not a racist country. There are racist residents of this country. And it seems more and more like a lot of people that are on CNN are part of that population. Back in a second. You know, somewhere in the Netherlands. Uh, there's a, 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 a wonderful little herring, a little fishy fish. And just swimming along, thinking everything's okay. And then they just pull them out of the water and they gut them and eat them with chopped onions. Somehow this is a delicacy in this weird country. No wonder they need legalized drugs. Well, they've got a new thing coming out. I know people love these stories. Where uh, <laughs> they're giving free herring if you get your vaccine. That's, that's what they're doing now. Free herring. To get to get your vaccine. I don't know why they don't just stand by their product. Hey, look, we think this works. Take it if you want. That seems to be enough for me. But everyone else apparently needs some gimmick to go get their shot. I don't I don't know why. I mean, get it if you want to get it. Don't get it if you want to get it. Don't want to get it. Whatever. But I, and I'm a I'm a defender of the covid vaccines overall. I mean, I've I've taken all of them thrice. So you don't have to. I feel like if I'm over vaccinated, you don't even have to get a shot. But if, it, if they were shoving a raw, disgusting fish in my face, I'd say, no, give me COVID instead. I want the damn COVID. So anyway, 
There you go. Uh, by the way, if I have any fans in the Netherlands, if icky snacks are your thing, I mean, just open wide. Ugh.